Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the TeamCast. This is Dr. Preston Klein, and as you know, this team cast, we talk a lot about mission-critical teams, obviously, but we also talk about not only the candidates and the people and the humans and the human factors that make up mission-critical teams, but also the way that those teams have changed over the last several decades. One of the big organizations that is central to our research is the U.S. Special Operations Command. And since 1987 and their formation, after Operation Eagle Claw, and their sort of coordination among all the U.S. special operation teams and their partnerships with the international special operations teams, they've gone through a lot of different evolutions. And today we have the opportunity to talk to Command Chief Master Sergeant Gregory A. Smith. Greg, he is the 10th Command Senior Enlisted Leader of U.S. Special Operations Command. He has been in the Air Force since 1990, and he's seen a lot of these changes, as well as just being a very articulate and intelligent guy. This particular talk, we're going to spend some time looking back on his career and sort of seeing what are the big changes that he's seen in U.S. Special Operations Command. What do you think has stayed the same? What does he think has changed? In other words, what are the things that we need to hold on to, but what are the things that we need to adapt? There's a lot of changes happening in SOCOM, both in terms of diversity, changes in mission sets, a lot of the things that are facing, all teams are facing right now, they're facing acutely. And he's uniquely situated to sort of both look back and say, hey, th these are some of the things that led us here, but he's also in the seat to try to solve these things. U.S. Special Operations Command is an enormous organization, and as the senior enlisted leader, he is in charge of big parts of it, big parts of the culture, big parts of the community. As a former member of ABSOC, or Air Force Special Operations Command, he also has this unique role, having worked in both the conventional side of the military, but also a big part of his career in the unconventional part of the military. And this really matters because as the world changes, these perspectives on both what we would call ordered problems and unordered problems really matter, the conventional and the unconventional, the ability to see growth and fixed mindsets or just things that are emergent versus things that are staying the same. And so with that, I'll lead us in and, and welcome everybody to this particular TeamCast. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the Mission Critical Team cast. We are joined today, we're lucky enough to be joined today by, and I'm going to try to say this slowly, Command Chief 
Master Sergeant Greg Smith. And what's unique about Greg is that Greg started in the Air Force in 1990. But what's interesting is that he has been the senior enlisted leader at U.S. Special Operations Command since 2019. What's interesting about that is that U.S. Special Operations Command wasn't founded until 1987. So he joined the Air Force three years after the organization he now helps run was founded. It was founded for those of us, for those of you, excuse me, in, in medicine, and FIRE, who may not know the world of special operations, U.S. Special Operations Command was founded after what was called the Holloway Report in response to Operation Eagle Claw, which if you know back in history, was the failed attempt to, to save U.S. hostages in Iran. And that report came out because what they found was a bunch of the existing special operations teams just weren't communicating well. And a bunch of teams emerged out of that report, including the overall umbrella of U.S. SOCOM, which is what U.S. Special Operations Command is often referred to. And in that command are everything from AVSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command, you get these lingos, right? But also Naval Special Warfare and some other things, Navy SEALs you've heard of. And so all of these come under umbrella so that they can be coordinated and led and developed in a consistent manner, but mostly so they can communicate and coordinate their actions in what we call moving from a joint environment to a collaborative environment. And those are different. Instead of being next to one another, you're sat together with people. And so first, I just want to say that as a background, and then I'll lead into some questions. But first, just thanks very much, Greg, for being here and, and hope you're doing well. Well, Preston, my friend, it's always great to spend time with you. I spend more time learning from you than I do offering advice, but it is a great honor to share share a little bit of time with you and my perspective on, on I'm sure, some, some intriguing and grilling questions that you have for me. Oh, no, it won't be too grilling. It's, it's mostly, and this is where I'll start with the first question. We're going to come a little bit tangentially. So I recently interviewed a gentleman named Rowdy Muir, and he'll come on the team cast before you. And what Rowdy is famous for is he was one of the first wildland firefighters to deal with what's now called the wildland urban interface. It was the first time in the 80s when wildland forest fires started butting against urban areas, right? So you've got this traditional existing organization, Wildland Fire, that's now encountering a fundamentally new problem, right? And they've still today are using the same tools and techniques to try to address something they were never designed to do, which is a softball way to try to lead into, <laughs> you've been doing this now for a few years, right? You've been in charge of it for two years. And when you think back, if you could go even back to 1990, to some of the big muscle movement changes, systemic changes, and then we're going to also lead into the next series of questions is the nature of the operator. What What is the same? What has changed, if anything? So let's start with the big picture stuff. What's, what's the kind of big changes you've seen in over the last few years? Yeah, so let's, I mean, let's start at the beginning, really, right? And I'll do this very truncated and, you know, happy to expand on anything you want. But in 1962, when President Kennedy made a speech, you know, and basically stood up today, the Green Berets, and talked about new wars of liberation to contain the Soviet Union and this really the, the acceleration of the Cold War. And this was, when you think about things from a diversity perspective, we needed a new way of thinking to attack or accomplish the challenge of what would be the Cold War, right? To, to challenge and tackle the onset of communism encroaching on the Western Hemisphere, across Africa, and threatening Europe and Southeast Asia. So standing up the Green Berets for a very specific capability, which would be a diverse thought, culturally aware, regionally aligned, embedded, and, and partnered with our indigenous forces. 
So now you rapid forward into 1980, like you talked about Operation Eagle Claw, and we had not, we had not synchronized a joint problem-solving set yet, right? So we had Army commandos on the back of, of Navy helicopters flown by Marine pilots, refueled and, and supported by Air Force Special Operations, pre-Special Operations, so that had not trained or worked together at all in the past. So out of the, the failings, and it wasn't a fail, it was, the mission was a failure, but it was actually birthing the Holloway Commission and then the standup of, of what would become Joint Special Operations Command, followed by U.S. Special Operations Command right after that. So throughout the 80s, we saw Grenada. We stood up Joint Special Operations Command in 1982. We attempted to uh, intervene in Grenada, you know, as we had a communist insurgency and guerrillas, we, we suspected. While the mission was a success, a lot of failures due to lack of training together. So out of that came the Goldwater-Nichols Reorganization Act in 1986 into the, into the Cohen-Nunn Amendment, which directed Congress to stand up Special Operations Command for the purposes of habitually training together. And this is the point I'm getting at, Preston, is, is it took an act of Congress to create us because just the Department of Defense, we ourselves were so resistant to change because of the institution that it is, right? Such a large organization resistant to change. So right after we stood up, Special Operations Command on the 16th of April, 1987, it was when special U.S. Special Operations Command became its own thing. Almost right after that comes Panama, right? So as we go into as we go into Panama, basically Christmas of 1989 was actually a stunning success. Captured Noriega, rescued our hostages, seized airfields, not without sacrifice, and then right behind that in a desert storm, which forced the entire Department of Defense into a re way of thinking. Deputy Secretary of Defense talked about really the third offset strategy where he talked about advances in technology. This was the rise of precision guided munitions throughout the 90s, a massive technological shift. So this will tie into one of your next questions, really, that I suspect will be the evolution. But in the 90s, it was about evolving now post-Soviet Union, evolving into low intensity, small scale, not necessarily communist, but peacekeeping and stability operations throughout the 90s, culminating in Kosovo. What was critical about, about U.S. special operations was we would train. Most of our force was from the 80s and early 90s, long lead time, culturally aware, time to train, 100 exercises for every op, okay. all the way up to 9-11. 9-11, a seminal moment in our nation's history. We can everybody can still see that second plane flying into the World Trade Center or this the attack, you know, the plane crashing in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, or the attack on the Pentagon. And immediately what happened? You know, I was on the first chalk of US forces deployed. So I deployed out on September 19th, eight days after. Boom, over we go. I went in to uh, set up our first air ops and then forward to set up our interagency piece in Pakistan, working with our Pakistani partners. And it was interesting. And then that did a chain of events that happened. So this continual evolution from the 60s and the 70s to working in silos, to starting to work in a joint, to not habitually training together, to long training times, to now rapid operational. In today's environment, we do 100 operations for every, every exercise we do. So we went from 100 exercises to every op where you, could, you had the time to hone your craft 
to now bouncing target to target to target through kind of what we would consider the war on terror, as most people will know. I'll stop there. So that's what I've seen as the evolutionary shift, if you will. A couple of things for our audience, just so that they can track some of these big muscle movements and these systemic things. You have to remember that unconventional warfare or commandos have existed since biblical times. They've always been there. They've always been on the edges of the battle space. Whenever feudal lords were going after each other, they would need these raids. But at the end of the war, they were always dismantled. And the reason is they're really difficult to work with. They're expensive. They don't follow rules. They tend to be kind of juvenile delinquents. So the countries were interested in a what's called a garrison force, which means a peacetime force, having a bunch of these long-haired freaks running around trying to cause problems and blow stuff up. It wasn't until 1950 where the British SAS was formed permanently, and that's where the Green Berets took their movement. But a couple things we should just draw attention to in what Greg was saying was it took a conventional organization to face a problem that they tried over and over again to solve and couldn't to finally get a permanent special operations, this highly agile force in place. So they're trading against predictability for more agility. But then what's super interesting, and this matters, is that those organizations, because they're made up of these unique individuals, often don't play well together unless they're told to. So the Goldwater-Nichols Act really mattered because it forced these kind of like savages to all come together and play in the same, and I say that with love in my heart, but in the same sand pile. So I just want to say all of that to draw a line through some of these big systemic changes because we're seeing this mirrored actually in fire, tactical law enforcement, and Medicine. So some of these things where we know that there are human factors, we know that there's technology, we know there's changing problem sets. Some of this can happen from the bottom up, but some of it, the adults in the room are going to have to sit down and go, no, this is what we're going to do now, everybody. So figure it out. Is that fair, Greg? That is exactly fair, right? I always I always equate the services. We have two parents, if you will, so common, the services, depending on Army, Navy, Air Force, you know, Marines, et cetera. And the services are like your mother. They want you on time for dinner. They want you, you know, to grow up proper. And, you know, SOCOM oftentimes gets compared to your father who likes to play with fireworks. And, you know, it's a lot of fun, you know, but is also a critical part of the family, right? And, and if you just, you know, when your mother gives your father that look and your father behaves himself, you know, those are the things that we are trying to make sure that we, you know, we align, you know, and our comprehensive review is a big part of that is taking a look at, how we assimilate and our levels of leadership and how we're employed and the factors on the, you know, the human factors associated with that. As an outsider, right, who's just been watching you from afar for the last decade or so, one of the big challenges that I see is a really significant challenge is that you are really exceptional at managing is the country needs, and this is important to understand, the country needs a conventional mindset. They need people that are responsible for delivering on time, every time, under budget to get things done. We also, however, need an unconventional mindset. We need people who are like, I need you over there Thursday to figure it out and tell me what the problem is. And those are different ways of thinking, behaving, organizing. And the tension between them has to get managed every day because you can't go one way or the other too far or the whole thing just becomes a mess. So it's this delicate dance and tension to maintain the strength of both. Is that a fair way to put that? Yeah, that's it. So just like Steve Jobs was to the computer industry, you know, you have to have disruptors to the status quo 
in order to think of new ways to do things, but not so much that it becomes an agitator, right? So disruption to the status quo can be good if kind of couched under an innovative mindset, right? Otherwise, it just becomes agitating that constantly. And there's a tension that happens naturally between those two things, between disrupting and agitating. So let's go back to one of your other comments, because I've been fascinated by this, which is this mindset, like we will practice a hundred times before you do an op. And now we're doing a hundred ops before we get a chance to practice. And we saw this in the buildup of the war. And when I interview a lot of people, they said, Hey, look, we used to take 36 hours to train for an op. And then we were doing 20 ops a night. There were certain people. And we talk about, you know, for your air force background, we talk about some single seat fighter pilots who aren't able to make the transition to crude teams or dual seat because they're the way they're organized it's really hard to do and what we saw was some personalities that weren't able to flex to this agile adaptive new way they needed the training time and i'm sure you saw some of that coming up I'm, i imagine yeah, I mean, my first six years, in the, in the, you know, and let me tell you this, I absolutely love my Air Force. I'm an airman through and through, and that is important when we talk about the connection to the services, right? So this here on my name says U.S. Air Force first and foremost, and I am very extremely proud to both be the senior enlisted leader and a quarter of a century member of United States Special Operations Command. But it is important to balance those two things, and the things that we look for are the agility of thought, which does not mean the services don't. It is absolutely not meant that way, but there is a very structured methodology that happens in the services for great reason. And United States Special Operations Command looks at the world just a little bit different to find those unconventional. So how do you find the people that can thrive and excel in those environments where it's very ambiguous and you look at the problem set just a little bit different? Yeah, the way I've been trying to describe this for some of my conventional partners is that some of my conventional partners are are required to be incredibly adaptive on the football field, but within the context of the football field. U.S. Special Operations is required to be adaptive within the urban setting that the football field is placed, like the entire city that surrounds it. And so there aren't the grid lines and the barriers in the right and left. Yeah, one of my favorite analogies is standard daily conventional battle rhythm is work inside the box. Yeah. Being adaptive is thinking outside the box. Special operations is building a completely different box and then thinking outside of it. <laughs> That's fair enough. I like it. So going backwards, right, we've seen this evolution, and you referenced it before. We've seen a massive growth of complex technology, an almost infinite increase in the amount of data and information that are coming to people, right? We've gone from unilateral to joint to now integrated or networked or team of teams, right? So we've got all these layers that are now in place that enable this huge machine to move forward with agility, and so when you go back in your time and you think about the operators who are exceptional at their job now compared to when in, say, 1990, there are some things that are obviously stay the, straight, the same, right? Honor, courage, commitment, of course, right? But there are probably some other things that have, that have necessarily had to change. And I don't know if you've seen or thought about any of that. Oh, I spend an enormous time thinking about this right now. And this, this is where I think diversity and inclusiveness and some of these other pieces get misnomered, 
right? In the terms of the standard, the standard is the standard at the end of the day. But if I go back to 1990 and I'm thinking about carrying a Misty 20 or a PSE 5 or a heavy old archaic radio, if you will, very, very capable for its times. And today I think about some of the integrated radios that we carry that can do data, video, streaming, multi-channel, mesh networking. I mean, they're computers that you are carrying at four pounds. We have a we have a phrase uh, term here that's called the hyper-enabled operator that you, I'm sure you've you've heard the term. And for for the audience, I want you to think of this in very, very simple terms. It's about three things. It's about power. How do I make batteries? How do they last longer? How do I keep them from overheating? And how do I extend the, the output range of it, if you will? So it's about power in the sense of all of this integrated stuff now that, that we're expecting. It's about protection. You know, it's about revolutionary technology in both signals protection, so I can emit, you know, without being targeted based on my emissions or, you know, securely. It's about my body plates you know, in 1990, I would wear a 12 pound body plate, front, back, six and a half pound plate on my sides. There are new technologies that are out there that lighten those plates that lengthen the life of the operator, if you will, both in terms of physical injury and endurance. So from power to protection, both in the electromagnetic spectrum, in the cyber area and in the physical protection. And then the third one is projection. How do I leverage data Things like the Android Tactical Assault Kit or ATAC and other you know, technologies that are out there, fused weapon systems that allow me to reach over the horizon or over the line to see what's beyond my immediate action drill. So I may be engaging an enemy at 100 meters in 1990. I want to be able to engage them at 100 miles you know, in 2030. So how do I integrate power protection and projection in a very dynamic environment. That takes the same standard of special operator, but maybe a slightly different person. So when we talk about diversity, I don't want us to just think about race or gender, or I want us to think diversity of thought, diversity of problem set, diversity holistically. And then within that, let's make sure we are attracting from industry, from gender and ethnic populations and racial groups to integrate the best problem solvers that all can meet a standardized standard. And we may adjust where we test you or evaluate you on that standard, but the standard is the standard. I'm not asking us to lower standards. In fact, I'm asking us to raise our thought process on this. So that's the biggest change, Preston, is 1990 was about brute force, was about long endurance with cumbersome and less computer integrated or technological integrated gear. Now you almost have to be a data scientist, a computer programmer, a whiz kid, a mathematician, and a warrior all wrapped into one. And it's a challenge to make sure we are attracting those people. Yeah, there's this really interesting case study from Naval Special Warfare. So obviously started in the 60s, I think 62, Naval Special Warfare is obviously the Navy SEALs and they come from the water, right? And so what they did was, unlike a lot of the other units, instead of recruiting out of people that have already joined the military, they went straight to the high schools and said, "You're gonna, we're going to put you right into our pipeline, right? Go right into the Great Lakes and then to BUDS, but you have to pass a swim test. And so what they would say is, here's the test, go prep for it, except here's the thing. If you're a water polo player in LA 
or you're a kid from Kansas, 100 miles from water, or a kid in Detroit who just doesn't have access to water, it's not the same test. What you're doing is you're not testing for swimming ability. You're testing for, like, geography. And right. once the Navy figured this out, they were like, well, that's stupid, right? We should, Good Americans are good Americans. Let's teach them how to swim. We, know how to, we can fix that problem. So they created, and they still have it, this multiple-week swimming course in the Great Lakes when you join. And at the end of the course is when they test you. And for me, it, that's where I talk about the, a fair starting line, right? You obviously want dynamic assimilation. We need people that can learn at the rate we need them to learn. We need people that have a grit, right? That can suffer through it, learn it, and then at the end, take the test and win. And then we also need strangely people who are lucky, right? Who just happen to zig and zag when we need them to zig and zag. So fast forward to what Greg is saying, right? We now need different capabilities, not modified capabilities, but we still need some of the legacy stuff. So then there's this question is, are all the starting lines right now serving our needs, not fair, but serving our needs. So for example, one of the things I get in trouble for is asking this question, why is there so much emphasis with some teams on pull-ups with weighted vests, right? And so, well, they have to prep and it's hard. Okay, I can tell you a hundred things that they have to prep for that are hard, long distance running, swimming, a hundred things that use your full body that isn't centralized to a couple of specific muscle groups that actually limit some parts of the population. So this question is, is the starting line fair and why? And the reason it matters, to Greg's point, is not for social justice. I honestly don't care. And then people get angry when I say that. What I care about is winning. And I know to win against a complex adaptive problem set, I need the most tools in the toolbox. I need a team that has the most cognitively diverse approach to the problem. I need 10 people thinking about this problem differently, not all using the same hammer, because then I'm just wasting a lot of hammers. And so to do that, I got to use things like race, gender, religion, background as proxies to see maybe they think differently. But in order to do that, I have to stress them, right, in a way that's fair. And is that is that a fair summation, Greg, of, of sort and of what you're saying? You just absolutely summed it up, Preston, of if I were, let me put my airman hat on real quick. If yeah. I were an old Vietnam era airplane and I could talk, right, I was the F-4, right, a, a workhorse of the Vietnam era, if you will. And we're in the late 80s and early 90s, and they go, hey, we're going to bring in a new airplane. It's every bit as capable, it's, it's, but it looks a little different. Yeah. All of the F4s of the world would be like, absolutely not. I mean, we are the workhorse. We're the ones we were created specifically for this. Look at all this great stuff you can do. We would never have an F-22 or an F-35 or an F-16. So my point is, is we are asking people to challenge what created them yeah. to think differently, right? And when you get into extremely elite or small, I hate the term elite, I really do, because just extremely specialized, yeah. right, and honed and repetitive and at the top of their game. I mean, the, the ODAs, the Green Beret teams and the Navy SEAL teams and our special warfare combatant combat crewmen and our combat controllers and our pararescuemen and our Marine Raiders and our air special operations air crews are the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And how they were created was the best in the world. But what got us here will not get us there. So I don't want to do away with what we have. I want to make sure we are maintaining our competitive advantage. And that means we have to think and recruit just a little bit different while hanging on to what we have as our base 
to allowing us to bound to the next objective. And, and it's very difficult to say, wait a minute, are you saying I'm not good enough or what made me isn't good enough? Or are you trying to lessen or change the standard? Because that's what validated me. And that's the hardest thing, especially amongst our alumni, special operations alumni population, which is strong and mighty. I thank God every day for their service. I do. However, we get locked in a moment of time and you know, the problems of tomorrow are just a little bit different. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think everybody across the domains can empathize with this. In our recent conversations with NASA, right? NASA astronauts were test pilots. Test pilots are a very unique kind of a person. And the problem is, is that they're incredibly good at what they do and we need them, but they're not necessarily great at leading scientists, right? That's right. not maybe one of their core strengths. And so now you have this International Space Station and some people were saying back a while back, decades ago, we're going to have to change the profile of the astronaut for a little bit. And people lost their minds, understandably. But at the same time, we did have to change. We have to evolve. We have to move on. And there's a zillion example of that in, in the way that surgeons behave, firefighters behave, etc. So I, I think about all of this and it sort of moves us to this other deeper question, which is is we're seeing, and you know, I mentioned wildland fire, we're seeing big changes in medicine because of COVID. We're certainly seeing big changes in tactical law enforcement that, have, that are long overdue just because they're not serving the population. And before anyone starts to lose their mind that I'm, I'm picking on anyway, remember this, here's what I care about. We have too many suicides. We have too many suicides in surgeons. We have too many suicides in cops. We have too many suicides in firefighters, too many in special operations. That's what I care about. So all of your arguments about legacy mean nothing to me unless you address that fact, right? My job is how do I keep my friends alive? And so what this leads us into is this question about going back to day one, right? Because here we are, we've had 20 years of war. We've been at war since 2001, and we've learned a lot. And one of the things we've learned is we're really good at breaking people. We're really good at it. We're really good at putting people in high-performance situations and then snapping them like a twig and then sending them home broken. And, so, and we have a lot of friends that, a lot of friends that are like that. So the question we've begun asking, and I'll ask you now, Greg, and I've asked you this before, is if you look back at your career, you go back to 1990, there's young Greg entering the Air Force, and you're able to go back in time and rip up the floorboards and lay down some specific skills that would serve you now, right? That the development then, the planting the seed then would grow and mature to be an asset for you now. What are the kinds of things that you go back and rip up and redo? And it's so hard, Preston, to do this because you know, you know, 22-year-old Greg is different than 50-year-old Greg, yeah. right? And life's experiences for us that. But kind of the first three things that I really would wish I would have known then what I know now and what I would if I could rip up the floorboards would be tactical patience, right? Understanding that that pulling somebody out of the fight at program parts right? And not allowing them to continue to deploy. I've done 14 deployments, seven years of my life forward, and I would have it no other way. However, that was absolutely not the right answer. Looking back, it actually destroyed many parts of my physical and psychological and spiritual body right along the way that you don't appreciate until later, especially now for, you know, for those that can see me like scars across your neck as you're going through neck fusions and back surgeries and all the things of just running hard, right, to catch up to you later. So tactical patience, agreeableness, recognizing, you know, you have to mix aggression. What I look for in a special operator 
of tomorrow, if you will, would kind of be these four things, if you will, would be the ability to appreciate the tactical appreciation of tactical patience, the agreeableness, even when disagreeing, especially in today's hyper-connected environment, you have to recognize that people are going to think different than you, and it is not always a win-lose situation. The calculus is not always win-lose. It's about perspective. It's about appreciating even when disagreeing, because that's going to become critically important in tomorrow's environment, especially with allies and partners and presence forward. So the patience, the agreeableness, a degree of narcissism. And what I mean by that is, is really a self-efficacy of I am in control of my fate. I don't need a fatalist approach, right? Or a nihilist approach. I need somebody that has high self-efficacy and locus of control where the actions that I take will control the outcomes of my environment right around me. Because that leads to legal, moral, and ethical good decisions because I recognize that I am in control even when part of a team dynamic. And then my last one would be a strong, centered, moral compass, and what I mean by that is not that I need you to be, I don't need you to be the, the person that won't go out and won't do, I mean, you can have fun, you can integrate with friends, you can, you can absolutely, but understand, you know, where those limits are, if you will, and that you're in control of those. And because you have a degree of narcissism that says, hey, I am, I am important, I am in charge, that I am willing to take responsibility for it, you know, because this situation will fail unless I engage you know, that degree of narcissism. Does that make sense, Preston? Makes total sense. And what you're saying is so important. And I want to sort of decouple or tease out some of these for, sure. for our listeners, right? Because there's a lot of history and there's a lot of context. And if you're not familiar with it, you don't realize how significant what Greg is saying. So we're going to start at the top with tactical patience. So I want to take you back to 2000, say, to 2002, as Greg was saying, these teams were practicing 100 times before they hit the ground. And all the practice practicing they were doing in the 90s was the belief that speed creates security. So the idea is there's a bad guy in a house. We got to all pile in the house and get the guy. We're going to clear that room. We're going to do as fast as possible. But the bad guys watch the movies too. And a lot of people were dying going through those doors, that funnel of death. And so some Israelis and some others said, hey, folks, why are you doing this? You, you, you own the clock. You surrounded the building. Why don't you call them out? Why don't you have a little patience? Call them out. And the problem, as you can imagine, is that when you take a lot of young, hard-charging folks that have been inducted into a community that values courage and bias for action more than anything else, there's a visceral allergic reaction to the concept that we would do nothing, right? And what I'm now telling people, not telling people, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this question. When I go work with teams, Greg, I will go to a shoot house or a fire academy and they'll be doing their training evolutions. And I'll turn to the cadre and go, do you ever do an evolution where the answer is don't go in? <laughs> right. And, and they're, well, well, no, we don't have a lot of time in this training environment. And we, and I was like, maybe once, just once out of all your evolutions, run one where the obvious answer is don't go in the building. Greg, any thoughts on that? I don't understand your statement. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. There is a natural tendency to lead from the front. And I will I will share a very short, quick vignette here of a yeah. very dear friend of mine just here in the not too distant past, but working with a partnered force and the partnered force 
again, very similar to what you're talking about, Preston, is they had closed contact on the enemy, preparing to breach, if you will, enemy return fire. They withdrew. U.S. member says no, went to the front, was ultimately killed because he was leading the force in. So a very dear friend of mine lost his life. At the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, and I try to bring this up, and don't get me wrong, he, we honor his service and remember his death and mourn him and, and celebrate him at the same time. But in the grand scheme of things, could we have exercised tactical patience there? And what is the cost associated, like you're talking about, of pressing, right? What was the, what was the overarching objective that did that? So it's teaching at that moment of critical thinking and decision-making Right. And that's, you know, the other basic stuff, Preston, that we didn't talk about was obviously I need athletic ability. I need critical thinking and cognitive thinking and creative thinking, all of those things happening simultaneously that then spill into these these attributes that I'm talking about now. So I need that member to be able to instantly critically think about, OK, what is the cost of withdrawing? Because there's going to be times where you cannot yeah. To use a double negative, you cannot yeah. not breach. Yeah. But but if we were to pull back or not go in, what is the cost of that in terms of the grand scheme of things? And that's an important point to mention to the audience to say some obvious things, right? Because people will be saying, well, tactical patience is not always appropriate. Exactly. It's not always appropriate. Sometimes bias for action is exactly the right answer. But the point is, is to have both options available to you and ready so that you can take a look at the problem set and let it dictate which is the right answer rather than your history or your traditions. It's changing your default button. Yeah. Is what we're trying to do, right? Is how many times do you get an update or something on your computer? automatically click it like you're pre-programmed to just click okay yeah right how do i get it where you stop and actually read the box even though i've seen this box a hundred times it may be the situation going on behind the window may be a little bit different this time but how do you do that when a thousand times you've read you've just clicked okay yeah so how do i get people to stop and read the box because it may say you know hey this update's gonna take the next two hours right and you're like oh yeah we've all done that oh yeah. crap i clicked okay yeah i got other things to do and i can't do them now I'm going to pause in this conversation and bring you back to something you said a moment ago. It really struck a chord with me. And there's a poem, strangely enough, I'll introduce poetry now. There's a poem by the Greek poet Seferis, which talks about not charting your future course based on the child operated on at noon, which mm -hmm. is this ideal, right, that your position now, Greg, there are situations like your friend dying, which is a personal event that you want to mourn and you want to get frustrated, but you're also the senior enlisted advisor. So some of this stuff is also a larger data input to a larger thing that you have to keep your head above and look ahead. So you're constantly, I imagine, I'm asking this, having to manage Greg as a person and Greg as senior enlisted managing, okay, I don't personally like this or this personally upset me, but at the same time, it's also indicating this over here needs to happen. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. So Preston, let me first of all tell you that I have great we have great physical and psychological therapists here. I go see my psych therapist on this very discussion of trying to protect my bias, yeah. right? Based on my life's experiences and what I believe validates me into my core beliefs versus my role, you know, as a leader that has to, has to leave emotion out of those things. So, so we walk through these discussions a lot and, you know, do I think I need mental health help? Absolutely not. Does a mental coach 
help me? Absolutely. And that's my point is we got to get out of the mental health piece of this, thinking of it as behavioral health of something wrong into mental coach, the same way we do strength and conditioning. So my physical therapist and strength and conditioning coaches put me on the weights. My mental coach puts me on the thought process. I'm going, hey, think through this. And it causes me to stop and pause that tactical pause and think through these things. And it, it really does help with, with kind of balancing those two roles, if you will. My role as a, you know, as a husband, as a, as a special operator versus the senior enlisted advisor, if you will, and, and all of those different roles. So, so you have to have good balance and understand that while the same and one informs, they inform each other, there is a separation, if you will, in terms of roles versus obligations, if you will. To your point, one of the things that I learned while working at the Wharton School is that there is, I had to discover for myself the difference between Preston and Dr. Preston Klein. Absolutely. And Preston and Dr. Preston Klein actually need different skill sets. And Dr. Preston Klein actually has to reach out to mental health professionals, chaplains, social workers, not because he's broken, but because he needs the tools to navigate an environment he's never been in before, right? So what got me from 10 years old to 15 years old, wouldn't have got me from 15 to 20. And, and it kept going. Every five years or so, especially with the, the step up to new roles, new responsibility, new leadership positions, you actually need different tools in your toolkit. And, and it's just logical to seek out people that study this and get some coaching, as you said, on how can I do this better? Yeah, to me, this is the cornerstone of everything. So I'm going through a couple of brain MRIs right now, just using my personal, because yeah. I have no HIPAA expectations whatsoever. So I'm an open book, right? But so I'm going through some brain MRIs. You know, I was in an accident, have some traumatic brain injuries, had some cranial bleeding stuff, um, blah, blah. It's all good. But the point is, is that going through these things, both I put my senior enlisted advisor hat up. Let's talk about cognitive agility, this fifth domain that special operations is now implemented. So over the life of 105 millimeter blast and overpressure and yeah. you know shooting heavy weapons. And for anybody that's in an industry where there's there's loud concussive explosion. I think factory workers, police officers, firefighters, anybody that does these, these high performance things, if you will, that require exertion. I did not know about the overpressure through your neck, behind your eustachian tube leading up to your ear and into your brain canals. So we in the comprehensive warfighter brain health have partnered with eight or nine different industries, really looking at the effect over time of micro concussions that then affect decision-making ability, just both as a, as a human, you may see rage or alcoholism and some of these other things that start to come out of this because you're coping with chronic headache or chronic pain or chronic things that you don't even realize because you're so adapt to go, go, go. And the operational tempo has been so fast, 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 and you are naturally suited for that environment. So I'll get to it later. I either medicate, drink, deal with, or compensate for those things as I continue to go. So how do I monitor, just like I do somebody's bench presses, how do I monitor their mental capacity over time in these high performing things and their ability to change to meet new challenges 
based on their shared history. That's where we're really focusing right now. Less physical, because I think we're in a good spot, a lot of work to do, but a good spot on the physical, what we call accelerated return to duty. So when everybody comes off deployment, just like any a firefighter coming out of the woods or coming out of a building, he's in the red at that point. We got to reoxygenate him, get him some rest or get her some rest, you know, let them recuperate, re-strength train them, get the hoses all redone. Same thing with a military member, with a police officer, with any team, a baseball player that's played a game has to rest, you know, a little bit after. If you play a doubleheader, you're a little bit more tired, right? So you've got to get that recuperation. We got the physical part, but what about the repeated cognitive impact that that places. We haven't placed any emphasis on that as a society. And we're just now really starting to understand the brain and its impacts on sleep, relationships, decision-making, all of these things. Open field running right now, Preston. A couple of things just to, to note is Sean Hulls, who's now with the Cleveland Browns, who was with the Philadelphia Eagles and before that Naval Special Warfare, who's a famous human performance guy. And I've known him for years now. And one of the things he talks about, he said, in the last 10 years, we've actually learned more about recovery and its role in high performance than we have about preparation. He says he doesn't want to overstate it like you have to do both, but you can't ignore recovery and still do high performance. But to your point, there's some really good news. One of the reasons that we wrote the residue article and and released all that information was to say, listen, there's a lot of people that say, oh, wow, I've had these overpressures, I've had these concussions, I'm now broken, I'm now disabled. No, we're actually seeing a lot of really extraordinary work in part thanks to SOCOM and their development of NICO and some other really extraordinary science to show that the brain is actually very adaptive. But you have to work at it like working out. You can't give up. You have to recognize that you're still in service to the country wherever you are, even if you've retired. And you got to get back after it so that you can recover, so you can continue to be a service. Yeah, that's how I see our role, both for the services and for society, is hopefully SOCOM in the human performance. And when I say human, it's not just physical. Because for us, the human is the weapon system, right? So I have to physically psychologically, socially, spiritually, and cognitively monitor her or his functioning over the course of time. And we can serve as a pathfinder for some of these technologies to really, because I have a Petri dish of folks here that are absolutely willing to try and experiment, you know, to to meet max performance in any of those domains. So I I now want to come to your second point that you make, bringing us back to this notion of what I call yes end or agreeableness. And it's this idea, and we've seen this, right? We've talked about this before where we've seen the last 10 years with many of our partner forces around the country, we'll send these elite operators, excuse me, not using these extraordinary well-experienced operators, JBs, what we call them, Jack Bauer, James Bond, uh, Jason Bourne, JBs, right? Send these JBs overseas to work with a partner force and cause an international incident. Incident because they come in sort of guns a blazing and very directive and they turn a lot of people off. And to your point, one of the things we're finding is that folks that are very good, two things we've actually found out, the folks that do well as cadre, as instructor cadre, often end up being great leaders because they, they're forced as cadre to take a minute to be empathetic and learn how to develop others. But they also develop this skill, which is built out of improv, actually improv comedy, which is yes, and somebody says something, you acknowledge it. Yes. 
And then you make your point. Instead of, no, you're an idiot, shut up, now let me talk. You get to the same place in the end, both of you are heard, but it's collaborative rather than assaultive. And we find that is a skill set now that has become increasingly valid. Holly Ridings at NASA and Mission Control, with all the different moving parts, talks about that as one of the, the key strengths of her flight directors, this ability to do yes and. So I just want to say that back to you to your second point and see if that resonates. You know, and I always try to equate it to the civilian world or anywhere else. So people listening will be able to draw a comparison. Somebody who wrote a checklist or wrote a procedure to do something will understand the eaches and whys of why each step in that checklist or that procedure or how to fill your gas tank, whatever it is, you will understand the whys behind it. Three versions from now, when somebody else just takes that checklist and does it, there isn't the same level of appreciation. So what I call is soft forward presence 1.0, my initial cadre, very, very agreeable. They're the best of the best. We sent them for a reason. Version 2.0, okay, hey, I'm going in, I'm picking up from these guys and gals, and we're going to do this. 3.0, it just becomes part of the battle rhythm and the, the strategic appreciation for this. And you see this on social media more than anywhere, right? It's, it's who makes the post versus who responds to the post is a good way to look at it. Yeah. So if you think of a post, any post that you put up on, even on Teamcast, or you had a thought process and a whole thing behind that post and somebody else just took for granted and, and offered their thought, isn't even tangentially related or kind of started walking off the grid. Yeah. So this is what we, what we have found, especially during our comprehensive review, to your point of incidents of misconduct forward and some of these things that cause international incidents. First of all, extremely small percentage, yeah. massively sensationalized because it's special operations. We are a victim and the culprit of our success, Yeah, right? Because we have sensationalized ourselves. We've been given extra money. We've absolutely been thanked. I think the American people have absolutely held us on a pedestal and we, we both deserved that and we deserve what come after every time we miss that because we have not policed ourselves properly or held ourselves accountable. So the second part of this is now I have a misstep. What are we doing as an internal culture? And what we found is because we disaggregated our force so much doing the Jack Bauer, James Bond, Jason Bourne thing that you talked about, where now I have singletons all over the place instead of a team over time, you get a disordered value system where it starts to become my values versus the organization versus the nation's values. And it's not all, but what we found in the threat of misconducts that we have painstakingly reviewed is they all share a couple of common, common threads. One is disordered value system, right? Because of a lack of direct leadership involvement, many cases they hadn't seen their leader in 18 months because of differing deployment schedules. So they've been off cycle because everybody's busy and this bias for action. So getting to yes, no matter what. Yeah. So we got to get to yes. I got that the constitution says this, or I got that my moral ethical compass says this, but we got to get to yes. This bias to get to yes for action then, because we have not spent the time with leader development, because the nation, you know, the tempo is so fast. When you think of parents, right? Mom and dad say they sit you down if you're if you're fortunate enough to be from a family, you know, a, a you know a nuclear family, if you will. Mom and dad sit you down and go, hey, hey, Jill, hey, Johnny, 
don't do this because, and they teach you moral ethical things. It's the same thing in your military or in your civilian life as an adult. You need mentors and leaders that will help you kind of guide through that. And if not, you may find yourself on magnetic north versus true north. And while that sounds great because you're heading north, before you know it, you are a significant degree of separation off from where you should be. It's a great metaphor. One of the things that I'd like to get your reaction on that I've thought about a lot is, and to our listeners, there is a very old concept called dogs of war. It comes from feudal times where they would literally in front of the castle, put cages of dogs, starve them. And then when the enemy attacked, they'd open up the gate and these starving dogs would go and rip apart the, the enemy. Great to have. They did great service for the castle. And in modern times, that's turned into this concept of break glass in times of war. And there will be guys in special operations, specifically, I mean, guys in this case, who are sort of savages and, and they, they don't often perform well. And this is a minority. And let's talk about these are very, very small amount of people we're talking about, but they're often justified because they know that once we put them overseas, they'll do great work, except some research came out. And what we found was that the break glass in times of war guys who are chaotic in a civilian environment are actually also disruptive in a war environment, especially a a complex war environment. What I want to just get at, though, really quickly is the jobs of some of these teams are to shoot people in the face. Let's not like in any way under like sell that or try to diminish that. This isn't a job where you go and are like bringing cookies. Like some of the time your job is to shoot people in the face. I get that. What we're talking about, though, is that the days where you're doing it by yourself are less and less true. And if you're not able to work with your partner forces or your teams, Greg is less able to use you or it has to has to fix whatever it is that you do, even if you get the right answer. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's very fair. Incredibly capable. You know, my boss, General Clark, tells a story and it's a great story about, you know, it's just a tale of two Rangers, if you will. You know, he was the 75th Ranger Regiment commander uh, several years ago. But so in one story, he had a member that had committed an infraction and everybody wanted to throw that member out. And he intervened and said, no, we're going to keep that member. And that member went on to do great things and then sadly was ultimately killed in combat. But, you know, allowing him to stay, he, he did a tremendous, you know, service to our nation. And then a member that everybody fought to stay that was the biggest, strongest, most tactically proficient mountain of a man, you know, pure assaulter, if you will. I mean, think about it. It's your, it's your cleanup hitter in baseball. It's your it's your ringer, right? It's it's the best physically, tactically, that type of stuff. And oh no, sir, we got to keep them. And he kept them. And that member went over and ended up getting in trouble with abusing a detainee, those, you know, those types of things, because the member was so proficient we have a tendency to, I can't lose that guy or gal, in this case, guy. But so so there's this balance, right? And then from 2006 to 2010, Congress directed and the department directed us to grow by about 15%. And think about 2006 to 2010. This is the height of the Iraq conflict, the surge. Most people remember the surge in Iraq. So now we're into 2010. Admiral Olson then the commander of SOCOM, speaking before people on the 8th of February, 2012, brought up, hey, I'm seeing fraying on the edges of the force because of this. Now we're bringing people in and it's trial by fire. So they're immediately into. So if think about if your kids are growing up on the streets, right, they're going to learn to fight because they're growing up on the streets. And if they're 
teammates are all fighting on the streets as well because you're in the middle of a surge. We're in a door-to-door fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, Somalia, other places. Okay, that's how you grow up. That is your formidable years. So that's all you know. Your instinctive reaction now is to fight. Now, to your point on the dogs of war, okay, now we get into a non-kinetic, a stabilizing environment. I got a bunch of fighters who are incredibly, incredibly proficient fighters. 99% of those fighters will be able to adapt, right? And they will become gentlemen or gentlewomen and and be able to adapt to a new environment because that's what we bring in. But it's that 1% that we have to work through. And, And unfortunately, you know, many people are like, there they go again. We are going to have incidents. I pray and wish we do not. But that is an unrealistic expectation that you will never have an incident again. Now, every incident is a tragedy, is whatever it is, whether it's anything from an abuse, an assault, you know, a crime, a DUI, whatever it is, a suicide because of failure to adapt to a changing environment. That is what I spend 75 to 80% of my time on is how do I help find, identify, assist, and then if necessary, hold accountable those folks are assist commanders as they go through this. Yeah, uh, it's a great point. And, you know, as to reminder to, to lawmakers that war is inherently chaotic and always will be, right? If we choose to go to war, we're choosing to engage in a chaotic environment. We will put limits on it, but it is by design chaotic. And we have to own all of that. I'm going to move us now to this, that what you commented on, and I'm going to push back a little bit, and you used the term narcissism and then went to self-efficacy. I prefer self-efficacy in a, from this framework, because when we talk about internal locus of control or agency, and for those that are listening or are not familiar with those terms, think about it this way. If you are a prison inmate, you have an external locus of control, meaning you don't get to control your destiny, the warden does. If, however, you are an elite operator, you have an internal locus of control, meaning you decide your own destiny, you go out and do that, also referred to as agency in the literature. This ability to have self-efficacy matters for a couple of different reasons. One, you're able to influence outcomes positively and negatively, and that's really important. But more importantly for me, and this is Preston speaking, it's because you are aware that your actions are seen. You'll hear me say this all the time. People don't listen. They watch. Self-efficacy matters because how you behave is how your subordinates will behave. That's the culture that your standards that you're setting. If you're not aware of that, if you don't think you're charge of that, you end up perpetuating some just dangerous habits. But when you take control of your own behavior, your own role modeling, your own action, one, you become a better leader, but two, you're more likely to grow the next generation. Is that fair? That is incredibly fair. You know, we do a psychological assessment on every operator, right, as part of whether or not we take them or not. And the category, one of the categories is degree of narcissism. So, if you have zero degree of narcissism, and you're right, we, narcissism is inherently a negative term, Yeah. right? Because there is a threshold where if you exceed that threshold in, in how you exhibit narcissism, we, we can't use you because you will place your values over those of the organization. Psychological. I mean, this is all DSM type stuff, right? Yep. So, but for us, you know, the, the op psychs and the folks that do the assessment say, hey, here, But I do need a certain degree of low-level narcissism in the sense of, hey, wait a minute, you know, my opinion matters, right? My and and that often manifests, right? And it gets grown, if not shaped properly, 
And you know this, it's like, I have a really good baseball player. You know, I, I'm just using sports or whatever, because it appeals that, you know, most people can draw it, who can hit the ball a mile, right? But he can't catch for anything. So do I take him because he's a really good baseball player? I have to be able to recognize strengths and weaknesses, but we have to recognize he's a really good ball hitter, right? As the part. So th- those are kind of where I look at, you know, my approach. So the the last one, and thank you, and the last one I wanted to sort of highlight that you brought up was this really strong moral compass, right? And when we talk about moral and ethics, and I forget, I get them mixed up. We just, my partner, Harry Moffat, just did a team cast on this, but interviewing an ethicist. And we talk about ethics and morals and this idea is what is the right thing for me? How, what are my core beliefs? And then how do I behave? And those difference between morals and ethics. And right now we're seeing in, in Australia and Canada and other places we're seeing reviews of behavior of the last 20 years. There's the big militaries are now looking at morals and ethics. And it's one of those things where people can write it off and say, oh, well, look, you know, we just heard you say, Preston, that war is chaotic. True statement. However, if I'm representing the United States of America, not only am I representing the Constitution and the flag and everything else, but I'm representing what the idea of America is. That's what I am representing. Whenever I go somewhere, if I'm wearing a uniform, I'm representing the dream as well. And I am the person who projects that because of the uniform. I don't wear one. I've never have. But in that scenario, I'm the person that's projecting that to the world. And if I don't think about that, if I don't have a place to return to a default zone and anchor to say this is right and this is wrong, bad things happen. Is that fair, Greg? Absolutely. So, you know, every leadership or every meeting I have with all of you know my counterparts, is it legal, moral, ethical? Right. So legal is black and white. It's pretty simple. Can you legally do this or not? Can consult the lawyers, make sure you're doing that. Is it moral? Okay, so moral is a set of beliefs, right, that guide us, and and they can become ambiguous, but they're not. We know what's right and what's wrong. And then ethical is, do I behave in that manner? And all of this resides under culture, right? So culture is different than ethics, is different than morals. Culture is is the embodiment of how the organization behaves. Is it a series of individuals? I'll give you a great example. We were talking about racial integration and part of part of the diversity. And I had an African-American Navy SEAL that was having this great discussion. He said, hey, personally, I have never heard a racial tone. The see uh, General Clark and I were doing sensing sessions all the way down to the team level. We've been doing this for the last couple months, almost religiously, just to kind of understand the environment. So this African-American Navy SEAL, great leader, says, I have never heard, as a matter of fact, I kind of used a racial, you know, tone. And one of his white members said, hey, we don't do that around here, right? Like, don't even open the door on that because then it opens the door. So we talk about culture. Is it really, really hard to do the wrong thing? If it's really, really hard to do the wrong thing, the minute you walk through the door of an organization, you will know you have a healthy culture. Yeah. And you can do this, right? I've, I've experimented this with a couple of times. And I did this on purpose, a little test. I'm, I'm cheating here because I'm telling people now, so they're going to know, right? But I had two organizations, right? One, nobody stood up when the boss entered, right? They just kind of all sat around on chairs, did it on purpose. And then the other one, everybody stood up. The office was clean. You know, the work center area was clean. All the stuff looked good. And then one looked crappy. And I wanted to see what the boss would say, if you will, or the people that I was with. And instantly you can tell, okay, 
something's different. Now bring a peer into that and watch how a peer will react differently. They'll stand a little straighter in a good cultured organization. They'll start to adopt. This is that efficacy and locus of control. Yeah. This is Lord of the Flies versus Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. Right. Does society make you bad and you're naturally a good person? Or are you naturally a bad person and society or the organization keeps you good? It's this balance between these two and figuring out, you know, the individual and organizational levels. Wow. I love the literary references. That was impressive. I so, wanted to do that for you. you know, yeah, you know, I appreciate that. I'm actually going to switch this gear now as we begin to land this plane. And I want to give you an opportunity to say what you want, your closing comments, certainly, and maybe some recommendations for our folks. But while I've got you, there is one thing I am, I've been just utterly fascinated by, and it has to do with the Air Force. So the Air Force, by some arguments, is one of the more conventional organizations by nature of what they do. They also happen to own AVSOC. And AVSOC is one of the most unique and special of all the commands because they produce, in part, they do a lot of things, but in part they produce pararescue men and combat controllers. What makes them so amazing, besides their incredible skill set, is that they don't train to go to intact teams with themselves. They train to deploy with other teams. So here's the situation. You've got a conventional force who owns an unconventional force of which it's not like anything else. Mark Sock's a little bit like the Marines, right? USASOC is a little bit like the infantry, but AVSOC is nothing like the rest of the Air Force. It is a different thing altogether. And then you're producing a group of people that are not like any of their peers. And so as somebody from the Air Force, that discrepancy has always fascinated me. And I don't know if you just wanted to comment on it. So I'm in a unique position in the sense of this is my fourth joint assignment, if you will. The majority of my life has been in joint you know, I was the senior enlisted leader at Special Operations Command Europe over in Stuttgart, Germany, where we had, a, you know, Navy SEALs and Green Berets and special warfare combatant craft crew members and all of those pieces, as well as our combat controllers, PJs and, and air crew. I was at NATO. I was here teaching school and now, you know, here, as well as being the Air Force Special Operations Command senior enlisted leader in my previous life. Right. So the, here's the fundamental question. Is AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, is it the air component of SOCOM or the soft component of the Air Force for the airmen and air commandos living in AFSOC? And to be honest with you, it juggles back and forth. Previous commanders, and it kind of toggles back and forth, has said, no, you're air commandos. You're the air component of SOCOM primary, right? And, And right now it's, no, you're the soft component of the Air Force primary. So you see this poll kind of back to the services of late. And it's very, very interesting to kind of watch this happen. There's no right or wrong answer because the real answer is it's a balance, right? Because you need the best of both worlds. You need to be connected to your services because you are a service member first and foremost. Don't ever forget that. But you also need to have that unconventional thinking and bring that to the Air Force. I have never seen a time in my history, in my 31 years right now, where AFSOC, the Air Force, and SOCOM are as close as they are right now in terms of dialogue, mutual respect and understanding, and collaboration. It is amazing to watch right now from General Brown, our Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and Chief Master of the Air Force, Joe Bass, who's a great personal friend of mine, right? Corey Olson, my counterpart at AFSOC, and uh, General Slife doing phenomenal things with modernizing and shifting the focus of Air Force Special Operations Command. Our combat controllers and PJs and TACPs and special reconnaissance, as well as our special operations surgical teams, 
are leading the Air Force in how we look at contested denied operations, battlefield medicine, terminal guidance in contested areas and reduced communications, how we do all those things. It's absolutely amazing to watch them from here. And I am privileged and honored, just like I am with Green Berets, our Civil Affairs, our PSYOPers, our 160th, the Ranger Regiment. What they do right now for the Army and some of these updated projects and reintegrating the, the, the special operations forces back into the services to help really, really hard problems. Admiral Howard and Force Master Chief King right now in the Naval Special Warfare, reconnecting with the Navy to understand how Naval Special Warfare can help the Navy bridge, breach, access, maintain, understand, and characterize is just, it is an incredible time to be here. And our MARSOC Raiders, who I was with last week, just continue to impress me how well they represent the Marine Corps and that. So you put all these things together what I am hopeful and praying continue happens is that we bring the very best of America's sons and daughters, represent our services together, and represent this command as problem solvers and helpers for, for, you know, for the future of America. That right there is the pure magic because we've got amazing people. It is going back to, and this is where we'll start to close out, but going back to where we first started, and one of the things that I have been noticing, and this is Preston speaking, just Preston speaking, is that for years, SOCOM and its subordinate commands have been sort of characterizing themselves as the tip of the spear. And what I'm starting to see more and more is it's less like a spear and more like a rolling spiked ball. And what I mean by that is that some of the teams that used to be technically enabling teams or enabling entities are now there, have their own sort of direct capabilities. And then we can see a lot of examples of this. And so it's less about a very specific small amount of teams, and it's much broader in the amount of, of levers that you can push. And I think in that networked environment, how people see themselves, how they conceptualize themselves as to where they sit in the zoo, right, really matters because that's part of their own identity and their own pride. And I think it's a fascinating time because this evolution is happening in real time. It's absolutely amazing. And, and and I will tell you that without everybody, it doesn't happen. And I, you know, I just spent the week up on Capitol Hill talking to our senators and congressmen. And, you know, as the General Clark got ready to testify uh, before them, and we are, we're into this season called posture season with us. We're spending a lot of time with Congress. I will tell you this, for all of the politics and hype and everything else, uh, which is important, don't get me wrong. And it's, and it's also incredibly fatiguing, you know, to watch, you know, yeah. if you will, when you watch the politics, Republicans, Democrats, Congress, our government right now is the fundamental support that we enjoy. Whether that manifests in budgets is a different discussion that goes back to agreeableness. Yeah. We can disagree on this, but I will tell you, you know, on both sides of the aisle, it was an incredible privilege to spend time with people like Senator Joni Ernst, you know, who her support for our preservation of the force and families and Senator Peters and Senators Tuberville asking great questions, partnered with ASD Solik, you know, really getting in there and understanding this. And then obviously Senator Reed and Senator Inhofe as our senior senators, our House of Representatives, you know, Rep Gallegos, uh, Gallego, excuse me, and, you know, Rep Kelly, and they're incredible. I can go on and on about, A, their incredible desire to help us and make sure America wins and to make sure that we do our part on this as well. I especially appreciate Senator Duckworth's part on diversity. It gets overhyped a little bit in the sense of her words get mischaracterized. Senator Duckworth, A, an American hero, 
an incredible patriot for our nation, has simply said, let's pull the very best of our nation and make sure that we're offering that up. And I, where do I sign up for that? Yeah. Who, who disagrees with that? I don't want to change standard. I want the very best. But I want the very best from the largest possible pool of people that I can possibly have. I cannot get my head around what's wrong with that. Yeah. So here's what we'll close where we always close, which is sort of giving advice to folks of what they can do on Monday. And for you, I'm going to characterize this question somewhat specifically. When you think back to your rich and extraordinary career and you think about all of the changes and the changes that are coming, right? What is a recommendation that somebody can start doing on Monday, whether they're in special operations or in fire and medicine, knowing that the world is changing at a rate that is incredible? What are the kinds of things that you would recommend or encourage them to think about? Yeah, it's a, President, it's a great question. And I would say three quick things. One, never stop learning. And don't learn what you know. Learn what you don't know or disagree with, right? And this goes back to that agreeableness. Understand the other side of the argument because they, their answer, I hate they, I hate pronouns, but they may be right. You are not going to be right every single time. And the more you solidify that I am right every single time, the narrower your options become, right? So do not paint yourself into a corner. So so never stop learning, read, understand, characterize those opposite points out there. That's number one. Number two, stay a master of your skill, right? So we need people that can, without a doubt in their sleep, perform their skill. Don't be so busy bounding to the next thing that you forget to do what made you great. Right. Because I need you to do that as your core, as your base. And I need you to maintain that. And then number three, breathe. Tactical patience. Right. In this hyper informed environment, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. Just breathe. Right. Nothing has changed in the last 10 seconds. Right. The more you breathe, the more you will relax your, your system, your endorphins will kick in and you will suddenly be able to find the time to do this. So tactical patience, continue to learn, and then master your skill. And uh, to me, those things are there is what I'm looking for, you know, in the special operator of tomorrow or the special team or the high performance team of tomorrow, if you will, is, is the ability to grab and then say, how does this relate to me? Even things I don't like, right? So eating Brussels sprouts. I'm still against Brussels sprouts, but I get your meaning. Yeah. (laughs) That's my world. Yeah. I can't thank you enough. I know how busy you are. It's been a genuine honor to talk to you. I'm always excited to talk to you. And so thank you so much. Preston, again, I always learn more from you than you ever do from me. So, so A, thanks for being my friend. Thanks for being a great coach and thanks for being a great teammate. Thank you, sir. Thank you again for listening to our team cast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.